We've been looking at uh, the idea of encountering the voice of God and to think about the ways in which we can encounter the voice of God. We have used this little Hebrew word that you see in the Psalms. It's the word selah. What does it mean? We talked about that. Many say the word selah means uh, a musical pause. The Psalms are musical after all. And so selah is, is like a, well, it's like a rest in a piece of notated music. You come to this little symbol and there you would pause and that's what the word means. Or maybe you take a breath there. Others say, no, it's not musical. It's textual in nature. It has to do with words, not music. You are to stop and think about what was just said. To weigh and measure those words very, very carefully. Either way, I like both of those definitions, but I think it's a great word to use as a way to think about postures of your heart by which you can more readily encounter the voice of God. And so we have used it as an acronym. There are five letters in the word Selah, and we have been talking about five postures of the heart. And we see them, I believe, reflected in the following psalm. Let's take a look at Psalm 62 once again, 5 through 8. This is our, our Selah passage as kind of the flagship for this study. It says, For God alone, O my soul... Wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And there you see that instruction, that word, Selah. And we use this acronym to talk about these five postures, and they are as follows. Silence, expectation, listening, adoration, and heart cry. And we're working our way through all of those postures. Last week, we looked at the very first posture of silence, and now we're moving on to posture number two. We're going to talk about expectation. Let me kind of read that first verse in the New King James. It says, my soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. What is that? What is expectation? Well, here's what it's not. Expectation is not entitlement. There might be something about that word expectation that conjures up the idea of entitlement. Maybe it's the root word, expect. And maybe you're, you're picturing the image of a spoiled child that expects uh, the, their parents to, to give them whatever they want. Maybe you are thinking about, uh, you know, many in our society today that have feelings of expectation from what they should get from the government or from society, what they are owed. Maybe people feel entitled to a certain quality of life or a certain kind of education, uh, that it's the government's job to provide this or that or the other for uh, them. Sometimes people, when they hear that word expectation, they think of... Uh, the religious world, they think of, of spiritual, uh, spiritually, they think of people who are inclined toward a prosperity doctrine to say that we expect from the Lord anything and everything that we should desire, that we can just name it, claim it, and it will be ours, that, that it's always God's will that you be healthy and wealthy and have prosperity, materially uh, be blessed. And there are a lot of ways that you can taint a perfectly good word, like expectation, but let me define these for you. Entitlement, which this is not, if you want to jot this down, is believing that we are rewarded based on who we are and what we have done. 
That's entitlement. Expectation is believing that we are not rewarded, but blessed. We are blessed based on not who we are, but whose we are and what he has done. And there were elements of both entitlement and expectation, even among the disciples of Jesus Christ. Some of them were very consumed with who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, they encountered Jesus and they asked him that question. Who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus talked about what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm reminded of the story of a, a baseball-loving little boy. Maybe you've heard this story. I think they came out with a song about it years ago. Basically, this little boy was alone in his backyard by himself. He had a bat in one hand. He had a baseball in the other hand. And he held that ball aloft, and he said, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he threw that baseball up in the air and he took a swing and he missed. And the ball landed on the ground. He picked it back up and he said, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he tossed it up again, swung even harder than the first time, strike two, missed again. Picked up that ball one last time and he kind of shook it off and he said, I am the greatest hitter in the world and he threw that ball up and he went back and I mean he swung with all his might swung for the fences strike three completely missed and he looked down at that ball dejectedly and then a smile crept across his face and he knelt down he picked up that ball and he said I am the greatest pitcher in the world what does it mean to be the greatest? Well, Jesus answered that question. Who would be the greatest? He called to himself a little boy. And we read this in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. They asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Very typical in that just like man, we want to know who's the best, who's the most loved, who's the greatest among us. He calls to him a little child, put him in the midst of them. He said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What must they thought about what he was saying? How did they interpret him? Many people have misinterpreted the words of Christ across the, uh, the, the centuries. Uh, when I was in college years ago, I sat in a class on church history and we learned about the Crusades and we learned about something called the Children's Crusade. And this took place back in the 1200s. And there was great enthusiasm at that time to reclaim Jerusalem from, from the Muslim powers that had uh, taken it. And Pope Innocent III was convinced that children were far wiser, far more pure than their, their worldly corrupt elders. And so thousands of children... Under the direction of Pope Innocent III, they were amassed, they were outfitted with armor, and they were sent to the Holy Land, expected to carry God's blessing. They marched forth to convert the Muslims and to retake Jerusalem for their Lord. And of course, none of them reached their destination. Many of them would perish from hunger. Many of them would be lost at sea. Many of them would be taken into slavery. It was just a debacle. Uh, this event and a horrendous misunderstanding of Matthew 18. Jesus is not saying that children are inherently greater than other people. 
that they're going to be the greatest in the kingdom just by virtue of their youth and innocence. He's saying that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become like them. In what sense? Think about what children are like. Children trust without reservation until the world teaches them otherwise. Isn't that true? Children are very trusting. And so Christ is referring to our need to be like them in response to him. Why? Because he is completely trustworthy. When my firstborn son uh, was just a little guy, I remember bringing him home from the hospital, and as he grew, uh, I would stand him up on the, uh, the changing table, and his little knees would lock, and he would kind of teeter there for just a minute. And he would look out at me, and he'd get a big smile on his face, and I would kind of step away, as, as you know, uh, reckless fathers might do with their firstborn. And I would step back, and i go, come on, buddy. And he would just, he would just stick one foot out there and he would just walk right off, you know, because he knew dad is right there and I want to go to him and I know he'll catch me. And he was right. I never let him fall. I never let him become a literally bouncing baby boy. I might have removed a little, I might have given him some trust issues had I done that, but I, I caught him and would cuddle him, but he trusted me. This is what Christ is talking about. There is a level of trust. There's a level of expectation. And what we need to understand is, this is what we are called to do. Now, we lose that over time, that level of trust as we grow, and we begin to develop issues, and we stop trusting others, and we start trusting self, and that is what keeps us at a disadvantage. It's a terrible thing to have an issue where you can't trust anyone but yourself. And spiritually speaking, in your notes, the difference between expectation and entitlement is the difference between, between being childlike and being childish. Childish. A childish nature wants what it wants when? Right now. Does a child that, that knows what he wants and wants it now, do they, does he believe himself to be deserving of that? He does. Expectation in the biblical sense is trust in what we know of God, trust in the notion that we will hear from God, and trust in the content of what God is saying and will say to us. And this concept of selah has everything to do with trusting that God will speak. Trusting that God will hear. And it requires a humble heart. What did Jesus say? You must become like one of these children and humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humility is an admonition or an ad admission, rather, of your own need. Why is this important for the Christian? Because your very salvation depends on your humility. If you will not humble yourself, can you be born again? You cannot. Humility is part of being childlike in our faith. It's part of coming to Christ, trusting, acknowledging our need. My kids have never had any trouble acknowledging their need. I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. We gotta be like that. That requires humility. You're not saying, I got this. You're coming knowing your need and you're coming knowing who is going to fill and meet that need. And being among the greatest in the kingdom means being humble enough to trust because trusting really is a form of worship. If you don't trust this person, then you're going to trust yourself. If you don't trust God, your trust is in yourself. And really what you are doing is you are worshiping self. 
If you are the object of your trust, then you are the object of your worship. When we went to India years ago, the ministry that we worked with over there, we would rejoice whenever they would you know, convert someone in that culture who was Hindu. Hinduism was the dominant religion in India. And so someone would come to faith and you know, the ministry that we were partnered with would celebrate that. But then occasionally, a few weeks later, they might see that same individual worshiping at a Hindu temple or participating in a Hindu holiday. And they would go up to him and they would confront him. They would go, hey, well, what gives? What are you doing? We, we, we thought you became a Christian. And they would say, uh, you know, and they would give some explanation. You would understand what had happened was they had embraced Christ, but all they'd done is they'd added him to their pantheon. He'd just become another one of the 330 million gods that are worshipped in Hinduism. Well, when you, when you put your trust in yourself, in essence, what you're doing is you're, you're just added Christ to your pantheon. You've just added him to the, the list. And we've got to learn to trust. How many of you remember when GPS first came out? Are you old enough like me to remember when GPS first came out? Now everybody's got it on their phone. I remember when Deanna and I were newlyweds. We went on vacation. We lived in Texas. We went to California. We, we booked a, a getaway at Palm Springs and all that. And I borrowed my in-law's car. They had a jazzy little uh, Honda S2000, and it was a convertible. It was, it was a lot of fun. But they had one of these GPS devices in there. And it was a little box, sat on the dash, and it was a Garmin or some such. And I'd never used anything like that before. And I was like, what in the world? Because I was glad to have it because I didn't know where I was going, but I'd never experienced the GPS before. And it, it had a voice feature on it. It would talk to you. And I recall that you could select the kind of voice and even the kind of accent that you wanted. You could even pick different languages. You could have it talk, it just for fun, we had him, you know, talk to us in Mandarin Chinese for a little bit until we realized we're never going to get where we want to go that way. And so we, we selected, just for fun, the voice of a British lady, mainly because it made me feel like James Bond. And so I would drive along and uh, we, we named her Bitsy because that was the most British name that we Yanks could come up with, you know. And so Bitsy would talk to us, you know, turn right and turn left, you know. And so I, I, was, I was having fun with it, but I was, little, I was a little nervous because she'd talk for a while and give you instructions. But then if you got on a long stretch, uh, she wouldn't say anything. And I started wondering, did our, our little British chippy fall asleep? What happened? You know, and so I'm driving along and I knew I, I knew I had a turn coming up, but we'd come up to this intersection. She didn't say anything and I'd grip the wheel. I'd get anxious because I, I, didn't, I didn't know this technology. And my wife would be like, not yet, honey, not yet. And I'm like, well, okay. You know, and so I'm driving and, and, and finally we come up on the turn and she springs to life and the Queen's English emanates from this little box. And I got so excited to hear Bitsy again. I missed my turn. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and so uh, you got to learn. We, we had to learn how to trust that device. Now, today, we, we can't not rely on technology. We're all so dependent on it. But we've got to learn to trust. Here's what Second Peter 1 says, verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence by which he granted us uh, to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
This is, this is trusting fully. You are, you are understanding it doesn't rely on you. You're not relying on yourself. It's not your responsibility to provide for yourself. Peter is talking about the provision that comes from our God. The words that he uses here, his divine power has granted, granted, comes from him. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, granted, called, by which he's granted us his promises. We are partakers, it says. And the reason that we struggle with this, I believe, is because we have an estimation of ourselves a low view of ourselves that we don't believe that God actually hears us when we call to him. We don't believe that he is listening. We don't believe that our, our interests are his interests. There are more people that struggle with than you might understand. Now, we've got this promise. The psalmist writes about it, Psalm 4.3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. okay. Trouble is, we don't think of ourselves always as being godly. And yet, how do you become godly? It's through Christ. He's the one who makes you godly. You don't make yourself godly. And so what is the, what is the crux of this issue? How can you come to an understanding that, that the Lord will hear me when I call to him? You have to have a proper understanding of grace. We talked about last week how uh, uh, grace is unmerited favor. It's a gift that we can't earn. It's, it's free to those who admit our need and who, who receive it by faith. And if we believe that we have received it and we require it for salvation, and by that he saves us, then why is it when we journey through the Christian life that we struggle with the idea that he will listen, he will hear when we call to him? It's because we have a flawed understanding of grace. Grace is given to who? God gives grace to the humble, is what Scripture says. And perhaps the reason that people struggle with the expectation that God will hear us when we call to him is because they are dealing with a faulty humility. A faulty humility. If you start out with the wrong concept, it's going to be a domino effect. You're going to end up in the wrong place. You're going to end up with the wrong destination. If you're trying to make your way around Springfield, Missouri using a map of Springfield, Illinois, are you going to have any fortune? You are not. I have not always been the handiest handyman. I've not always been a crafty craftsman. You know, I, I've kind of started to, to dabble in woodworking in, in, in the last few years, but there was a long stretch in my marriage where my wife, if she wanted furniture, it was coming out of a box from Target, you know, one of these shelves or whatever that you put together using wooden dowels and an Allen wrench. That's about the best I could pull off. And even then, I'd mess it up because I'd get cocky and I'd think I knew how it goes together and I would, I would lay aside uh, the, uh, the instruction manual. Bad idea. I came up with some pretty funny-looking furniture. <laughs> Friends would come in and they'd go, Nice wine rack. I say, that's a bookshelf. And they're like, nope, that's a wine rack. And I'm like, are you serious? They're like, well, it's upside down. But, you know, I mean, if you start off with the wrong idea, you're not going to end up with the right product. And so in your notes, 
If you want to jot this down, a flawed version of humility leads to a flawed version of expectation. Many of us think that being humble means we have a low view of self. That's the wrong view of humility. Uh, you think you have no, no value, little or no value, and you pass that off as humility. That kind of posture makes it difficult to receive or understand grace. You can't be humble by denigrating yourself. Uh, we cannot say that we are unworthy of being listened to God. Actually, we are unworthy by our sinful nature, but if he has saved us, then he has declared us to be righteous. And so when we denigrate self, what are we really doing? We're denigrating God. We're denigrating God. And when our humility is of a, a brand of tearing down self, seeing you yourself as, as something less than what God would love and, and, and go to the cross for in the form of Christ, then your expectation will eventually become the wrong thing. I want to show you the chain. When you get off on the wrong foot, you start with the wrong focus. In your notes, your focus is you. Where's that going to lead? We often think of the polar opposite of humility as being pride. Well, this is actually beyond pride. This is, this is different from pride. It's a warped, uh, deformed misunderstanding of true biblical humility because the starting point is wrong. It's not humility. It's, in your notes, humility. It's humility, all right? Why? Because it's all about you. What are the hallmarks of humility? Well, in your notes, first of all, there's contempt for self. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. How can it be all about me and yet I have contempt for self? You'll find out. But the bottom line is you don't really like yourself very much. You're still consumed with yourself. You just don't like yourself. You're overly negative. You struggle with the idea of redemption. You don't really like who you are. You see your flaws, but you don't see them as forgivable. Humility looks like the real thing. It looks like authentic humility to some people from the outside. A lot of people mistake it for humility because you exhibit something. And it's the next thing in your notes. You exhibit a sanctified inferiority complex. You know what that comes across as? You subversively uh, flaunt this, woe is me, I'm unworthy persona. You, you trash self. You, you constantly refer to yourself as being lesser, okay? You share your failures openly like a badge of honor. It's all in the, the guise of being humble, of being spiritual, you, you, you try to portray it as a form of spirituality to denigrate self. And you believe that by focusing on your flaws and your worthlessness, you are somehow magnifying God. And you're in a depressed state in the guise of being humble and spiritual. And you think that by focusing on your flaws and your worthlessness, others will see you as somehow magnifying God as though that's really your goal. When in actuality, that's not your goal. That's not your goal. Colossians 2.18 in the New King James, it says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which, have, uh, which he has not seen, which uh, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. It, it equates false humility with worshiping angels, which tells you what? It tells you that to be immersed in this humility, 
that you are engaging in a form of idolatry, as strange as it sounds. And despite your your inherent self-doubt in your notes, you highlight your own flaws out of a desire for attention. You're highlighting your flaws to get attention because that's what you really want. You'll take it however you can get it. And one way to get it is to portray this exterior of false humility and self-deprecation. And despite your negative feelings, despite your doubts that you've got about yourself, about your past, you continue to draw attention to them because ultimately it's all about you. At least you're getting attention. Humility. And you publicly focus on what's wrong. There's always something wrong in order to draw attention. And people who struggle with this, they, they're, they're trying to fill that need. And they often point out, here's what they do, they often point out the good qualities in others. And they will, they will just, they will just uh, 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 fawn over other people. Why are they doing this? To get the obligatory return gesture, you see. They excessively point out the the great qualities of those around them. Oh, you're, you're so wonderful. You're so smart. You're so deep. You're so accomplished. You're so talented. You're so pretty. You're so blessed. I'm just wah, wah. And all of this is so others will respond by saying, oh, no, 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 you're, you are too, you know? Absolutely. And then you get to say, Really? And then you got them, you see. And you crave praise. And you'll, you'll, you'll try to get it however you can. That's humility. And that's a twisted perspective. And it's a twisted dispossession. And here's what it leads to next. It leads to, in your notes, works. It leads to a, a state of mind of works. And here's what, what you do if you've got a works mindset. In your notes, you seek to improve yourself on your own. On your own. You got a skewed focus. Your humility is incompatible with faith and grace. And so you turn to works. That's your default. So that you could try to become worthy on your own. I got to be better, you say. And if your focus is on you instead of on God, then you don't seek to change the focus. That's too hard. So you'll try to change the flaws. Why do you want to change the flaws? Next in your notes, you're attempting to change your flaws to earn praise and blessing. Because if your focus is on you and you're you're trying to change your flaws and you succeed, or at least you appear to succeed, who gets the credit? You do. You do. And people will affirm you for it. Look what you did. Man, look at your life. You've worked so hard. What's your secret? You're amazing. And in doing all this, in your notes, you stubbornly attempt to invent or create your own identity. Your whole identity is now based on your own accomplishment. And it becomes this never-ending quest for approval. And eventually, this this warped path, it's going to wind its way down. And the next section of this little chain here is entitlement. Now you're at entitlement, not expectation. Not the right heart posture, entitlement. What is entitlement again? It's believing you are rewarded based on who you are and based on what you have done. You have pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. You've clawed your way back. How do you inquire this sense of entitlement? 
in your notes, you understand or you believe that favor is conditional. It's conditional. It's a, it's a transactional thing. Dangerous. Dangerous. Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Favor is conditional. And then in your notes, you believe that entitlement says, I deserve to be blessed. I deserve to be blessed. Because, of course, that's what entitlement says. It's, it's all about who I am. It's all about what I've done. Of course, I deserve to be blessed. And then, in your notes, you believe that blessing is something to be earned. God now will hear you. God will listen to you. You've earned the right to be heard because you've worked so hard. That's the frame of thought. But what if, what if at the very beginning you don't start with the wrong focus? What if you start with the focus not on you, but now in your notes your focus is on God? This is the right starting point. And now instead of humility, now you've got authentic humility. Humility. And under this, you don't have contempt for self. You don't loathe self. Neither do you think you're all that in a bag of chips. Okay? So in your notes, what is this? This is the right acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement of need and dependence on God. You understand it has nothing to do with me. I have a need. I know where to fill that need. I don't need to denigrate myself to see that need filled. I know who is the provider of that. And so there's a, a healthy reliance on God's power. And I'm just going to let God be God in my life. And in your notes, you understand that you are the object of his love. That is the healthy viewpoint. You're the object of his love. You recognize who made you. God made me. If I'm going to tear myself down, that means I'm tearing God down. As they used to say, you know, in the last several decades, God don't make no junk, Right? It's, it's true. It sounds like a bumper sticker, but it's true. And you understand that you are the object of, yes, undeserved, but unequivocal redeeming love. Paul told the Ephesians, he desired that they have strength to comprehend all the saints, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants you to know that he loves you. He loves you. And in your notes, you have a truthful, truthful view of yourself. You don't think too highly. You don't think too low. Rather, you think rightly. You think truthfully concerning yourself. Paul writes, Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Biblical humility is seeing yourself the way God sees you. Seeing yourself the way God sees you. Not the way the world sees you, not to inflate your ego, but also not to look down upon yourself. If you're a child of God, you are the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. You know that in your original state you were fallen, but by putting your faith in Christ, he has taken up residence, you, residence in you. You are no longer fallen. You are redeemed. And this proper view of humility brings you to a proper view of grace in your notes. And you recognize your need. And so now in your notes, you, you receive freely that which you don't possess on your own and you can't earn. It's a gift. And you know there's nothing that you can do 
to achieve it, but it's free. You can accept it. You receive it with a grateful heart, a grateful heart. John Piper uh, says that humility necessarily involves gratitude because you're thankful for what God has provided that you could never come up with on your own. And in your notes, you understand that humility is an essential prerequisite to grace. Can you be saved if you're not humbled? No, because to be humble is to acknowledge your need. You can't be born again unless you've acknowledged your need. And so you can't experience the grace of God without humbling yourself. The brother of Christ writes in, in James 4, 6, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here's the result of this, is that in your notes, you claim your new identity in Christ. And I can't tell you how big a part of the Christian life this is, that you understand I have an identity in Christ, and I'm going to walk in that identity. And I'm not going to believe the lies of the world. You know, the movie The Help, you seen it? Cicely Tyson's character in that movie, she plays a, uh, she plays a, you know, a, a member of a, a house staff and this wise African-American lady, her name is Constantine, and she says to the protagonist in the film, she says, every day, every day I got to make a decision. I got to decide if I'm going to believe all the lies that people saying about me. Every day, that's your decision. You gotta decide, am I gonna believe the lies that the world is saying about me? Am I gonna believe the lies that the devil is saying about me? Or am I gonna believe what my God, my Savior, Jesus Christ, says about me? Am I who he says I am? Or am I who the liars say I am? That's gonna make all the difference for you. And you walk in that identity. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them for all the good it did him. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so here's a man, by the way, who changes his name to Paul. Is that a, that's, that's a new name. Some people say, well, that was just his Gentile name. He used to be Saul. That was the Jewish name. Yeah, Maybe. Maybe, but I, I know this. In Acts 17, 18, 21, 27, 28, 39, 40, he's in Jewish circles and he's Paul after his conversion. I think he, he had this idea of I'm a new creature. I'm a new man. And if you'd done the things Saul of Tarsus had done to the believers of Jesus Christ, you'd change your name too, I promise. And this understanding of grace, when it's lived out in your faith, here's what it leads to. It leads to that posture that we've been looking toward expectation a posture of trust a, a heart posture what is it again we said it's believing that you are blessed based on whose you are and what he has done this sets you up to know that he is listening it sets you up to encounter his response to you his voice it's believing that he is good in all things, regardless of our best efforts, our worst efforts. Expectation says, God hears me because I am his. And for no other reason. We have no favor from God on some transactional relationship. Expectation believes in your notes that God always hears you because he loves you unconditionally. He doesn't hear you because you're good. He doesn't hear you because you're in church. 
He hears you no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, if you're, if you're his. He hears you. Have you ever felt isolated from God? You ever felt like you were so far away, you wondered if he could possibly hear you? I did one time. I felt so alone. This was years and years ago. I was in my early 20s. I lived in San Diego, California. I worked for a missions organization. And uh, that summer, there were a couple of weeks where we were all on break and the office was closed and all my friends went to their respective homes. I lived, my family lived in South Dakota and I couldn't get there. I didn't even have a car. And I was really sick of not having a car. I had enough money to scrape together and buy a one-way ticket. And then I had an idea. And I called up my mom. And I said, Mom, I need a car. But all I've got is a, I've got enough money for a one-way ticket. How would you like me to fly home? She's like, oh, we'd love that, honey. But how are you going to get back? I said, do you still have Big Bertha? Big Bertha was our 1984 white Chevy Caprice station wagon. Now that is not the hippest car for a 20-something to drive, but I was desperate. I wanted wheels in the worst way, and so my genius plan was to fly home one way and drive Big Bertha cross-country from Sioux Falls, South Dakota to San Diego, California. And they said, you really want that car? I said, I'll take it. And so I did that. That was my plan. So I went home and spent a few weeks, and then I packed up everything, and I got my maps all together, and I drove cross-country. And Big Bertha died on me several times. She died in Nebraska. She died in Wyoming. And I would pull off to the side of the road, and I'd pop the hood, and I'd just sit there, and I'd wait till she cooled down, and then I'd start that engine, and she'd fire up, and, you know, I'd shut that hood, and you could hear the rods. I thought a rod was going to shoot through the top of that hood. And I got in that car, and we barreled on down that highway, and I'm just trucking along, you know, like this. And finally, we're in Utah, and she died a couple times in Utah, you know. And I limped into Provo, and I had, uh, I had a hotel reservation. I remember it was a La Quinta Inn, and it was on top of a hill. And I pulled up, man, and I'm praying. I'm going, come on, come on, Bertha. And we pull up, and we get to the bottom of that hill, and she sputters to a stop. I shared this story with the kids at GCA the other day, and they, could, they were like, ha, ha. And so I got to the bottom of that hill, and she dies, and I'm just, I'm done, man. I'm like, I'm spent. I, I, I had very little life experience. I had next to no money. I couldn't afford to take her to a mechanic, you know. I, I just needed to get home. I was tired from a long day of driving. You know, I'm out there in the middle of nowhere, and I just, I put my head on the steering wheel, and it was like, like that. And I'm just praying, God, please get this car up that hill. I didn't even know if he was going to hear my prayer, you know. When I prayed that, I heard this sound. And I looked over, and knocking on my window was a burly teenage boy. And I rolled the window down. This is how long ago, this is how old this car was. You know, it was not this, it was this. It took like five minutes, you know. And I looked at him, he goes, sir, are you okay? Nobody ever called me sir before, you know. And I was like, well, um, you know, my my car died. He goes, where are you going? I go, I got to get up that hill. He goes, no worries, sir, we got this. 
Come on, guys. And I kid you not, a Mormon high school football team (laughs) comes running over the hill. They're out for their daily jog. And they come, he goes, you just sit tight, sir, and you steer, we'll get you up that hill. They pushed me all the way up that hill. God heard my prayer. He had them right there on hand. He was ready. Expectation is a thing. Expectation in your notes says, I am blessed. I am blessed because I know that he hears me unconditionally. I am blessed. I'm not waiting to be blessed. You go into this posture, you go into this exchange with God with this mindset of, I'm already blessed. I'm not praying to get blessed. I am blessed. And I can say that because, in your notes, believing is the blessing. Believing. You think the victory of that story was these Mormon teenagers? That wasn't my victory. No, the victory was me coming to the end of myself. You know, I stopped trying to figure things out on my own. What God wanted was for me to rely on him. He wanted me to trust in him, to acknowledge that he was there. Jesus tells the story about he who has the faith of a mustard seed can say to the mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and it'll be done for you. That's a pretty daunting uh, idea of faith. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the focus of that story is that mountain? Or is it our need for faith? Do we ever not need faith? No, we need faith. He wants to drive that point home. You need faith so much that if you would just have this much, look what I could do. We need expectation. We need to understand who God is how God thinks of us, and it leads us to a place of trust that God hears, that God speaks, and trust in the content of what he is saying. There was a big change whenever I see David wrestle with this. Psalm 3, 1 through 3, David says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? You ever been here? How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Can you relate to this? where you're just in the dumps, man, people are out for me, people are down, trying to take me down, and after you see that, what's the word? Selah. Now look, right after Selah, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. How many of you need your head lifted from time to time? When does David's head get lifted? David's head get lifted up. There's a sailor there. There's a shift in his perspective. He goes from hand-wringing to celebration after stepping into sailor. I believe that's part of the expectation, the understanding that God hears when I call to him. He wants faith. It's all he cares about. Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it's impossible to please God. Forget about it. You're not pleasing him without faith. And every challenge we have in life is an opportunity to exercise more faith in Christ Jesus. And if believing is the blessing, then we need to ask him to help us. We need to trust him to help us more and more. Prayer changes things, yes, but more than that, it changes me. 
It changes me. It changes my perspective. And Christ is obsessed with this for us. You don't believe me? Matthew 8.10, he says, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with as much faith. In Matthew 8.26, he says, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? In Matthew 9.2, he says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Matthew 9.29, According to your faith, let it be done to you. Matthew 14.31, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 15.28, Woman, you have great faith. Matthew 15.28, Matthew 4.40, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith. Matthew 5, 34, your faith has healed you. Matthew, uh, Mark 6, 6, rather, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Mark 10, 52, your faith has healed you. Mark 11, 22, have faith in God. Luke 7, 50, your faith has saved you. Luke 17, 19, your faith has made you well. Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on the earth. Luke 18, 42, your faith has healed you. Luke 8, 25, where is your faith? I think he cares about faith. It's our focus. Believing is the blessing. And a blessing of believing that God is good when you're happy, when you're sad, when you stand on the mountain, when you're in the valley, when you're languishing in the depths of the sea, when you're stuck in Provo, Utah, at the bottom of a hill. <laughs> and when you've got that kind of heart posture, you are positioned well to encounter the voice of God. That's expectation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise that you've set apart the godly for yourself. You have. You've set us apart. You've granted us every good gift. You are such a good God. You are such an attentive God. You are observing us. You're watching us. Your eye is on the smallest sparrow that falls to the earth, God, and your gaze never leaves us, no matter where we are. You say, if we make our bed in hell, you are there. And Lord, I just pray that all of us would come into this posture of believing that you hear, that you have a word for us. Sometimes your word does not come in the form that we want, you don't always answer the way we want. You don't always answer with the rapidity that we desire. Your timing is different from ours. Your ways are not our ways, but you are wise, and you are present, and you love us. May we know that. And we pray in Jesus' name a blessing upon everybody here tonight. In your holy name, amen.